John chapter 14. One of those passages that is a joy to read and difficult to preach. You probably have much of this memorized in your heart, at least conceptually. I would therefore, before we even begin, give you the encouragement yet again. Submit yourself to the Lord and to His Word, no matter how well you know it even now. Listen to what the Lord would say to you. This is God's Word in John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father. And the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let us pray again. Our Father, these are your words. We ask now that you would speak. Speak the words of life to us that we may hear from heaven. Give life and light, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I like to think about different jobs and what that job would be like to do. Well, some of those you like to think about for about that long, and then you're like, nope, middle school teacher, I'm out. I don't really want to think about doing that. One of those jobs that's interesting to think about, though, is to be a 911 call answerer, you know, work at the 911 call center, to be the respondent when the phone rings. You got to think, I mean, that job has to be unbelievably difficult. 
The phone rings, they pick up on the other end, and whomever they're speaking to, that person is having most likely one of the worst days they've had in several years. They're most likely frantic, emotionally fragile, all the while the person at the call center is trying to discern what the real problem is. Do I, do I need to send medical help? Do I need to send a police man or woman? Do I need to help in another way? And all the while, they have to figure out the right words to say. Because if they say it the wrong way, you're dealing with an emotionally fragile person. You don't know how they'll respond. They may kind of snap and go crazy. You've got to figure out how to gently and calmly and cautiously get the information that you need so that you can give the help they need. I like to think about those people. I've spoken 911 a number of times and just constantly amazed at the, the elegance and the eloquence and the command of just calm English they've been able to use. John 14 is not entirely far off from that kind of moment, from that kind of need. We pick up the disciples and they're what we would kind of graciously say, they're not in a good place emotionally. They're not kind of in a good frame of mind. You remember they've had the triumphal entry. They've had, oh, yay, look, this is it. This is it. And Jesus comes into town and he clears out the temple and then he goes home and they're like, what's going on now? And then they start bickering about who's the best as they're walking into the Passover feast, and while they bicker, Jesus shames them all by washing their feet. And oh my goodness, that had to have been embarrassing. An awkward meal, man. We don't want to talk about that. That's painful. Oh, the social uncomfortability. Jesus is washing feet, and then Peter's rebuke in the middle, this scalding, just scolding rebuke of... Well, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part in me. Okay, if Jesus says, if you don't let me do this, you can leave now. Oh, okay. You're the boss. I mean, literally, you, you do what you need. And then in the midst of that, to have a conversation about the betrayer and Jesus being turned over and Judas leaving and some of the disciples joining in that conversation. And then Peter's predicted denial the end of chapter 13. Oh, the rooster's going to crow. You're going you're gonna to deny me. You're going to betray me. Yeah, he's the one that left and who's going to kill me. You're going to betray me just as bad. And you have to think that by the time you get to this point in the Passover meal, which is already a fairly sober event as it is, the men are not really in a good frame of mind. A little emotionally fragile, and Peter's just been told he's going to betray his Lord. I don't think I would take that well. I don't know about you. And in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the hurt feelings and the insecurity, in the midst of all of the just kind of fragility of soul, Jesus begins to teach. 
And chapters 14 through 17 really form kind of a cohesive unit of teaching and prayer. And Jesus begins with, much like a 911 responder, tender, calm, soothing words. He starts with this unbelievable, just glorious command. Let your hearts not be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled, depending on the translation you have and the order they use. But the idea is the same. Don't fret. Don't fret. Be calm. Be relaxed. Don't be anxious. And I'm going to tell you, if I'm Peter at this point, I'm probably not listening to that. Because having just been you know, prophesied that I will betray Jesus, I, I think anxiety would be an appropriate kind of, you know, at least some sense of an emotional response. John's laying next to him, having known that Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas and seeing Judas run out. He knows he's not emotionally happy either. And Jesus begins with, let your hearts not be troubled. And as I read this, I think about this, and I guess some of you might relate to this, some might not. Those that have been uh, husband and wife at some point in their life know that moment that occasionally, sometimes it happens for some, where maybe the wife gets a little bit upset about something, and the husband stands directly in front of her and says, you need to calm down. Now, for some of you, you, maybe you've had that experience, maybe you haven't. Does it ever work? No. <laughs> that would be my wife speaking. Yes, no, it, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. It's a, it's a command. It's a kind command. It's an imperative. It's a, I'm telling you exactly what I want you to do, but it's not enough. Or put it more differently. We have it with the kids or the grandkids. Stop crying, you're fine. Interestingly, do they stop crying when you say that? No, of course not. It, it, it's, it's the good command. It's a, a kind command. But it's not enough of a command. And so what Jesus does in the rest of the passage is he gives them, in essence, an exegesis, an explanation of why they should not be troubled. Why they should not be anxious. Why these men who are in just a few short hours going to be separated from their Lord because he will have died on the cross, why they will be able to go back and remember, okay, why should I not freak out now? Because I'm really feeling like freaking out. Now, I recognize in a room this size, it means we have somebody in here probably in a fairly similar condition. Maybe not freaking out, but maybe contemplating it. Maybe having a good cry, a, a good kind of, I'm going to take a break mentally for a bit. Maybe we're not at that place right now, but we will be, and I'm going to encourage you to pay attention to God's word as Jesus explains why we as his saints do not need to be anxious. Why we do not need to be troubled. First, it's, I, I think this is the most interesting one out of all. If we're going to begin with a calm down. Most of us immediately jump to truth reasons. Uh, a friend that, you know, gets dumped by his girlfriend or something. You say, you'll be all right. It's true, 
But that's not, interestingly, where Jesus starts. Jesus, interestingly, starts with another command. A place I would never have thought to begin. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to worry. Why? Reason number one is a command. Go believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Those are both, again, imperatives. They are commands. You are to go and actively believe. Jesus is teaching an important lesson in this part. One, two elements to this, I guess, is one is that anxiety and it's not a passive thing. And victory over it and having our hearts not be troubled in Christ, it's, it's not a passive thing. It's not like we just wake up and like, oh, anxiety's gone away, I'm fine. As God's people, as his saints, we're called to be participants in the kingdom of God. We are called to be participants in righteousness. We are called to be participants in peace. So we are commanded to believe, to increase our faith, to grow and develop in our trust in God. Because you understand as your faith grows, your peace often grows as well. You can see this, I think one of my favorite illustrations, adopted children. When they're first adopted into a home, they can be a little twitchy and neurotic and anxious and uptight and, you know, high strung. But as they begin to understand mom and dad's love and grow in that knowledge of I belong here, to grow in that security and the belief that mom and dad will take care of them years down the road, you can watch what happens. Personalities change. Quirks sometimes fade away and become a part of the family. Jesus is instructing God's people to understand part of how we conquer trouble, anxiety in our lives is an active commitment to our faith. And it's interestingly here, he's not saying believe in anything, not believe in yourself, believe in the Trinity. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's an active, intentional trusting in Christ because he's the only object of faith that is worth it. The only one who is capable of transforming how we think and how we feel and how we act. He doesn't stop there, though. So his his first response is a command to go work out your faith. Go intentionally believe in Christ to trust in him. Go do this thing. And then he turns to truth. Propositions, a reality that is coming. He tells them he is preparing a place. First, he's told them to believe. Second, he tells them he's preparing a place. Verses 2 through 4. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, 
You know the way to where I am going. He turns to them to propositional truth. And unfortunately, many of us have kind of memorized this one or familiarized ourselves with it incorrectly. In that, we have picked up one of those lovely translations that has many mansions. And that's not right. That's actually an Americanized version of it because when we think of glorious living quarters, we think of gigantic mansions removed from everyone. Nikki and I lived in Atlanta and lived not far from a prosperity gospel preacher who had a church comprised of very, very poor folks who lived in a magnificent mansion. Huge tree-lined driveway wrapped around the lake all the way back to a, it had to have been a 6,000 square foot house. It was absolutely humongous. His idea of, of living high on the hog was living away from everyone. Jesus here is actually, interestingly, teaching something very different. He's going to prepare a place for his people, and that place is inherently corporate. I go to prepare, in modern language, a better illustration would probably be to prepare an apartment complex for you. It's a place where people intentionally live on top of one another and with one another. And how do we know that? It's because what does he also say immediately following? I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to, not your home, to myself. You see, the place that he is preparing for us is intensely corporate. Corporate with the saints of God. Corporate with God himself. It's relational. It is intimate. It's knowledgeable. It is in community. He's obviously speaking of the life to come, the new heavens and new earth. But there's also a sense in which this is even immediately fulfilled in the church. You see, I think one of the things here is, why, why is this a solution to being troubled? That's a great question to ask. What, what is the transition that Jesus is making? Why is anxiety and trouble, how is that solved in this truth? Well, I think one of the things is, as again, being a pastor and having had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with people wrestling through turmoil and struggle, and you know this in your own experience, the greater the trouble, the greater the hurt, the greater the anxiety, the more deep the tension in your soul, the more alone we feel, isn't it? Spurgeon had a great quote where he said, I'm probably going to murder it, but uh, little pains are very loud. Great pains are often silent. If I get a paper cut, I'm going to tell you about the paper cut. You sit near me at Flocks, you'll find out about my paper cut. That's just how it works. People could be dying on the inside and will never say a word about it. Isn't it funny how we work that way? And yet the Lord hears, look how he's, he's giving a reminder to the saints of God. Look, know what the life to come is going to be like. You will be with the saints. You will live together. You will be in community. You will be intimate. You will not be individualistic like America. Sorry. 
And the good news is it's not just with the people of God, but it is with God himself. I go to prepare a place for you and I will take you to myself. Again, think about when you were a kid and your parents have been gone on a vacation or gone away or something for a lengthy period of time and you just want to be with mom and dad. Or if you were married, that first trip apart as you know, young married couple where work takes your part or something, and you're like, I didn't know I could miss someone like this. I just want to be with them. I, I want to be together. Christ is giving the truth, the reality that we will be knit together in such a way. And then he gives one clear explanation that follows, and this is fantastic. You know the way to where I'm going. Thomas says, well, I don't know where you're going, much less how to get there. And I don't think he's being rude or insincere. I think this is one of those that if there's a place like that, man alive, I want to go there. I just don't know how to find my way. And Jesus explains, no, you do know the way. You've known him. He's been in your midst. You've listened to me. You've eaten with me. You've talked with me. I am the way. And the reason why I am in the way is because I am the truth and I am the life and I am the only one that provides access to heaven. I'm the only one that provides access to the community, to the intimacy that was mentioned previously. I am the only one that is worth believing in. I am the only way. The reality of the matter is there is a great temptation in the church to have these first points, but to skip this one. The American church today wants to talk about how do we be free from anxiety? How do we be free from stress? And the American church wants to talk about believing in yourself. And the American church and the culture wants to talk about community and finding relationships together. But we don't want to talk about what we do, but there's only one way to get that. There's only one answer. There's only one truth. There is only one Savior, Christ Jesus. It's not a reality of, well, if you just believe it and believe it hard enough. Believe it sincere enough. I actually heard that by a a dear saint just in the last week had a conversation with someone and they made the point this is far 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 away it was a vacation it kind of doesn't really matter what you do as long as you believe it hard no that's not true there's one way his name is Jesus There would be a natural temptation if you're a disciple at this point. To understand it and to be sitting there going, I get it, but I'm just not totally sold. Like, 
just a little bit more and it might become easier if I could just, I don't know, just something to push me over the edge. Something. So Philip, and I think here again with great sincerity, says, Lord, if you're one with the Father, just show us the Father and that's enough. Just show us God's glory and that's enough. Just like Moses, show us the glory cloud of God. Just give us some sort of reminder and that'll be enough. If, if I've just seen God's glory a little bit clearer, then I won't be anxious. Then I won't be upset. Then I won't be stressed out because I will have something I can believe in. Oh my goodness, what a temptation that is, isn't it? It sounds so sincere on the surface. Just give me something I can take home, an image I can fix in my head, something that I can walk away and say I believe because God has shown me. And Christ here goes into Trinitarian theology. Philip, how many years and you still don't get it? You want to see the Father? Just look at me, he says. God is in your midst. You don't have to wait until you get to heaven to see the Father. You don't have to wait to see His glory. You don't have to ask for a special sign. Christ says, you've seen me. For I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He works through the Trinity here. That God the Father is God. That God the Son is God. He does not mention the Spirit though. The Spirit is God. All three persons. One God, not three gods. Why do we not need to be anxious Why can we have trust and be free from trouble? How do we have a solution to stress in this regard? I I love Christ's answer here. It's it's the Trinity. You think on the Trinity. What's the cure for anxiety at this point? Well, it's the Trinity. Makes the theologian in me happy to think through this way. We can look and see, look, the Father has sacrificed His Son Christ on my behalf. Do I have anything to be anxious over now? What trouble do I have that if I am a saint of God has not been paid for on the cross? What must I be afraid of? And if that weren't enough, he continues. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. This is an amazing thing to think about that the second person of the Trinity says to the church, by the way, better things are going to happen. I mean, he raised a man from the dead a couple of weeks previous, but better things are going to happen. And it's going to be the church doing it. And then we actually can look at church history and say, has he been proven true? Yes. I mean, when he goes and sins to glory, how many saints are there on the entire planet? A thousand less than that? The church is run by 11 bozos that haven't really got a good track record. I mean, you read these things and you're like, really? I mean, he's right about to be crucified. And Philip's like, um, I'm still missing the point. And we look around now and the saints have, the churches around the entire globe. I mean, 
at General Assembly this year, we talked about somebody sent a motion, a business, that each presbytery uh, pick up a language to try to translate a Bible, to fund a translation of the Bible. Why? Because we're actually close enough that in our lifetime we could see it be finished. All of the languages get them. That's one of the reasons they're trying to push for it. We actually, like in my lifetime, have the potential to have every known language have a copy of the scriptures. It's possible. I would say that's a pretty special work, isn't it? That the name of Jesus is spread around the entire globe. Amazing things are happening. But again, he doesn't even stop there. And continues further even into a theology of prayer. Look, if, if you're anxious, ask. If it's good for you, if it's according to my name and my plan, I'll give you anything. And I love, he, he doesn't add all of the qualifiers that you normally see. This is a statement he intentionally makes big. Ask it in my name, I'll give you anything, I'll do it anything. I mean, look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. According to his will, this is intentionally designed to be big and sound big and to show the scope of Christ's redeeming work. You see, what Jesus is doing here is trying to get his disciples to understand. He's teaching them and teaching us too. As saints, we are not called to be anxious. Anxiety is sinful. Be anxious in nothing. Oh, prayer, thanksgiving, present your request to be known before God. That the peace that passes all understanding will fill you. Anxiety is evil for the saints of God. It's not right for us to do. It's not what we're called to be. We're called to be contented creatures. We are called to be creatures of peace. But the reality of the matter is this is not something that oftentimes resonates with us because we live in a troubled world. And if we're going to live in a troubled world, we are going to have a troubled life. And so we need to be properly equipped to face it. How are we properly equipped? Well, we actively improve our faith. We intentionally believe and we refine our theology. We think about heaven. We think about the Trinity. We think about God's uh, continued power given to the saints. We think about his prayer. We rest in the work of Christ. Why? Well, because like I said, some of us are going to walk out of here today and have a good rest this afternoon and then come around dinner time tonight, that sinking feeling in the pit of our stomach will start to hit. And then tomorrow. And all of the crushing stress of work settles in. And we have to face another week. And we start the countdown Monday morning. Can I make it to Wednesday? And then can I make it to Friday? And then how long can I make the weekend feel like? My friends, if you find yourself in that situation, particularly with work, and it is crushing, and it is oppressive, and you find your days filled with anxiety, Jesus speaks to you. For he's designed the human soul to operate in the presence of God actively believing in him 
And then intentionally thinking and trusting on the promises that he has made. Promises of the life to come. Promise that he is the way. Promise of Trinitarian theology and the intimacy that we have. Promise of his power. The promise of prayer. Because Jesus loves us so much, he doesn't just say, calm down, go away. But he calms us and he equips us so that the next time we don't have to get quite so crazy first and may learn and grow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask that you would change how we think and how we feel and how we act. That when we are called to face stress and anxiety, that we would respond differently. May we intentionally and actively believe in you because of the redeeming work of Christ. May we think on you, your triune nature, your mercy shown to us in Christ, the only way, your power shared with us in the Spirit. May we rest in you and trust in you, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.